My name's Keith, and I'm one of the pastors here at Stonebridge. And uh, I, I'm just excited. I'm excited for this text. I'm excited to preach. I'm excited to, uh, to just share this time with you guys and, and uh, to go through something that I think is honestly something that Christians don't pay enough attention to. You know, sometimes we, we tend to be like, well, I don't like to get in the weeds of like deep, you know, theology. I don't like to get into theological terms and stuff. And uh, that's, that's not good for us as Christians. We need to go deep. Right? We need to be, uh, be really, really deep in our understanding of what the Bible tells us is true, even if it requires some big words and a little bit more mental gymnastics. You know, recently, I was, I was entertained by the confirmation hearing, hearing for the, uh, the new, hopefully new justice, I guess, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. I found it to be delighting that somebody had such great confidence in their understanding of the law. I don't know if you guys watched, did anybody watch that? hilarious. Like, people were trying to catch her, and, and she knew her cases better than the case. Obviously, she knew her cases better than what they were, like, trying to cite. And so, even a few of them who were trying to catch her were like, wow, that, I'm really impressed, right? This is really, really funny. Um, and she didn't even bring, need to bring notes, right? She proceeded to school all the smart questions that everybody tried to use to trap her, making many of them look quite foolish in the process. And it also produced my favorite meme, I made my own. You see... You see that there, right? What? If you don't know, if you don't know what that's citing, then maybe go watch some of it. But it's, it really is the best. It's just the best. If for context, uh, they asked her what notes she could. Somebody said, "Well, we have everybody has all these notes. What notes do you have?" And she just holds up a blank pad, and I was like, "Ooh, <laughs> wow, it's awesome." But yeah, but this is true. This is what we're going to talk about. Like what what I contribute to my salvation. Absolutely nothing. If you wanted to get more specific, I think it's been said before that what you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it possible, right? Um, and, and that's important, right? But the reason, the reason back to this uh, sort of hearing, this confirmation hearing, the reason that this is so hotly contested is that, you know, what seems to be at stake with this nomination, both sides have very clear views on what the laws should be, but in the words of Barrett herself, uh, the job of the judicial branch is not to make the laws. Now, I don't know if you know that, but, but here's a little bit of a government civics lesson for you. Like, in case you don't, especially young people, perk your ears up. It is not the, the Supreme Court's job to make laws. It's their job to uphold the laws that the legislative branch has made. So we get it sort of mixed up where there have been a lot of things in the past, you know, few decades in which the court is making laws, and that should never be the case. Well, she knew that and spoke about that. It's their job to rule on the laws which the legislative branch passes. And it comes down to the question, where should the laws come from, and what are the laws for? Right? Where should law come from, and what is law for? It's a good question to ask. But we have to answer this question as, as believers as well. Paul had to answer this question in Scripture. Paul spends the letter to the Galatians correcting some errors that surrounded the function and the purpose of God's law. Like, what is the law? Who makes the law? Who gets to, who gets to determine what the law says? And what exactly is the law for, especially with Christ being in the mix? Paul, in his letter to the Galatian church, has opened up the discussion on the error of forsaking the gospel by declaring that the, the Gentiles keep the law in addition to believing upon Christ. And Peter even had forsaken the truth that, that nobody, not, not even the Jews, are declared righteous by God because of their own effort or own ability to keep the law, right? That's what what we talked about, what we learned about last week, is Peter fell into the trap of believing that you're supposed to add something to Christ for salvation or to sustain salvation or to be okay. And Paul is just really upset about this and trying to clarify with the church uh, the essential message of faith alone in Christ alone for our justification. It was essential to Paul that Christians not lose sight of what actually unites believers. The message of the gospel, that God in his mercy has made a way for us to be restored to right relationship with him because the person and the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's it. You can't add to that and you can't take away from that. And I believe that it's essential in this moment 
for Christians to be reminded of the depth of our need and the depth of God's grace and to deeply think about how it is that we are able to be declared right with God, right? There are a lot of things that we could be focusing on in culture right now. I still believe that the number one is for us Christians to wrap our heads around how it is possible for God to declare sinners right because when we understand what that takes, we will be more passionate about sharing the gospel with people who are bound for hell that will become our greatest desire, right? Not, not to ha- see our will be done, but to actually understand the depth of God's plan of salvation for all people, even those who don't agree with us. So there's two big questions about justification that Paul is going to sort of answer And he presupposes these as well, but we're going to look at these two big questions. The first big question that we see in this passage of Scripture is uh, predominantly in verses 15 um, through 19. We see this laid out this way. How are condemned sinners made right with God? How is it that condemned sinners are made right with God? Look at verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified, right? Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now, he starts out by saying, you know, we are Jews and not Gentile sinners. And before we run too far about what he's trying to say, he's not slamming Gentiles. He's just basically saying that in terms of categories, the Jewish people, the Jews were the ones who received the law. So they were the ones whom God had said, if you, you know, live, we want you to live in this way and you can have right standing before me, right? If you live in this way. And so they were the ones who received the law. The Gentiles were the ones who were kind of outside of that favor of God setting them apart. And so what Paul is saying, like we're Jews by birth, we're not like outside. However, then he says, we know, we know, you know, we as Jews, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified, right? So the assumption was that because you have the law that you can keep the law to such a degree to where God will look at you and be like, okay, you're good, right? You've done it. It was the mistake that the rich young ruler made, right? No, I've kept all these things. Liar, you have not, right? You've not kept all these things. You know, in a a great book on justification, uh, Buchanan, who's the author of this book, says, a work to really be good must be in itself in conformity to the precept of his law. It must be done in obedience to his will. It must spring from a right motive. It must be an expression of love supreme towards God, disinterested towards men, it must be directed to God's glory as its end. When we ask the question, how are condemned sinners made right with God, we first have to deal with the issue like kind of how bad is sin or what constitutes sin and what constitutes being good, which we have a real problem with, right? We weigh ourselves by somebody who's really, really bad, right? Be like, well, I don't act like Charlie Sheen. Well, pen a rose on your nose, right? Like, good for you, like, but that doesn't make you good. Does that make sense? And even the way that we weigh out good, the standard for good is that it has to be in line with the precept for God's law, which is not sort of okay or up the scale or I'm trying as hard as I can. It is absolute perfection, right? The standard of absolute moral perfection and the goal of your heart in that standard. It's not just, can I do the right thing? It's, am I doing the right thing for the right reason? Is my motive purely to bring glory to God? Now, some of you may be like, no, that's why I do it. No, it's not. Maybe, maybe by the power of the Holy Spirit, you as sanctified people, you really have the Holy Spirit driving you to do that. But let's be honest. Most of the things that we do, even the good things that we do, are more driven by what's it gonna do for me? How is this going to make me, you know, feel better? How is this going to increase my joy in living, right? Like husbands, if you treat your wives well, good for you. That's good. But if you treat your wife well because you want your week to go good, that's still selfish and that's still sinful, right? This, this is true. So in order for something to be really classified as like the, the complete fulfillment of the law, it's more than just something good, 
Because you ask the question, by what standard are you considering this to be good? By what standard would you consider this thing to be keeping the law? A morality that's not directed from placing every consideration on the throne of God can be materially good. It can look like it's good. It can look like it's beneficial, but it can still be morally evil because it is not itself directed toward the end of all goodness, which is the glory of God right? So we even screw up when we come to the question, well, what is it to be good, right? How, how are we to understand our need to be justified in the sight of God if we're walking around thinking that we're basically a good person? You can't. You can't. What's the first commandment? What did Jesus say was the first commandment, the first and greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And he adds, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Based on those two, right, they had, they had added all these things to the law, and he gives them two, and they immediately know they have not met that. They immediately know. You immediately know when you hear that how, fall, how far you fall short of that standard, don't you? Because I do. All I need is for that to be held in front of me. God's law is the standard that is expected for righteousness, and his moral law is still binding on all people, even if they don't acknowledge it. Right? You meet somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and you're like, well, I have a, such a hard time because they seem like really good people. Well, don't be fooled because the end of their goodness is still not driven towards the glory of God, and so they're still in sin. They've rejected the, maybe the highest offense in the universe to reject what God says is the only way to salvation, to set Christ aside. It doesn't matter how many things they do on the surface that look like th that's justified. They look like they have a together life and they're good. It still does not meet the standard. It does not meet the standard. Okay, there's no pure motive. Many people have dulled their conscience by discounting the actual demands of God's law, right? So even when Paul says, look, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Okay, so why would, why would Paul say we know that someone's not justified by the works of the law. Well, because even in the system that God gave to the Israelites, there were sacrifices that were built in because he knew that they weren't going to be able to accomplish the law. If you read through, I mean, you, you see very clearly that even the, the priests were a mess. You know, Moses was a mess, right? David was a mess. If there was no sacrifice, they'd be in a lot of trouble. And yet, what they had been falling into is thinking somehow that they had actually been keeping the law, that that was something that they could do. Paul says, you know, we actually know that nobody, nobody is actually justified by keeping the law because nobody does that, <laughs> not to the degree in which they assume they do. See, the law, the law gives us the line, right? Doesn't it? So when we talk about justification, being made right with God, I'm trying to set this very dark background of, of why we need it and what it means. But the law gives us this line and says, like, this is the standard, yes? But as sinful human beings, we only really want to know the standard so that we know how close we can get to it without breaking it. It's why in 16 years as a youth pastor, I can't tell you how many times I heard the question, well, how far is too far physically? It's like, I mean, if you're asking the question, you've already jumped the line, really, because you're not interested in being like, oh, I'm going to keep myself pure. You want to be like, how close can I get to sex and still be pure? That's why that question got asked. <laughs> There's not a real interest. I, very rarely did I hear somebody say like, uh, you know, I really just want to know in relationships how I can be absolutely sure to keep my eyes set and focused on Christ at all times, even if it means I don't date, right? I've never heard that question. But I have heard, well, what can I do? But see, that question is always presupposed on wanting to get really close to breaking the law, and that just tells us that our hearts are like, not only do we not really keep the law, we just don't want to keep the law. And so Paul's really trying to establish the problem. The problem is that you're not justified by work. You're not justified by keeping the law. You're not justified by doing what, doing what the Bible says Without Christ, there's no justification for that because your motive is not pure, right? It's proof that we want our own righteousness on our own terms, and we will search for the loopholes to reckon ourselves as right with God on our own performance, on our own performance. Let me ask you a question. Um, and this is, there are two sort of errors that we fall into. One is to, 
to, uh, to utilize the standard as simply a guideline and kind of stay close, right? Which is where the Israelites, you could kind of see the, the Jews and these, the ones who are the Judaizers and trying to put this on the Gentiles. This is kind of where they landed, right? Um, staying close to the law. Let me, let me ask you this. Is driving 58 and a 55 technically illegal? You know where I'm going with this? Have you ever driven 58 and a 55? Sinner. Sinner? No, and really, I mean, like, let's parse this out. Does that make you guilty of breaking God's law? Yes. How do you know? Because God says you must obey the laws of the land. If you don't obey the laws of the land, then you're counted as unrighteous because you've, you've usurped what he has put in, in place for justice, okay? So if you usurp that, you are basically telling God, I don't, I don't care about any of your rules. I don't care about your rules about the government. I don't care about your rules about speeding. And it, I know you're going to be like, man, like all of you will drive the limit home tonight. I'm sure of it. But but let's be honest. Let's be honest. That is really, that's the line. That's the line that many of us have no problem crossing. We have no problem telling, telling small lies. We have no problem, like, pulling the, pulling the wool over somebody's eyes is, if it's going to help us. We have no problem with, with just making little tiny adjustments because it's really not that bad, right? It shouldn't be like that. That shouldn't be what it is, right? But but we get ourselves in a mess, right? If you were issued a ticket and there was sufficient evidence, would you be found to be guilty? Yes. And you'd have to pay the fine, right? Our sin pushes us towards the line, and we often cross it, or at least we try to leave freedom for others to sin egregiously, thinking that we are averting, averting greater crises. And we play silly games with the law, like this one that I hate. Like when I hear somebody say, oh, well, making abortion illegal is just going to encourage women to get dangerous abortions. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's just dumb. I mean, because, like, do we want babies to die? No. So why, why in it would we ever justify that as being like, no, that's a good, that's a, that's a you know, this is why we need this, is because so that this doesn't happen. It still is against God's law. Read Scripture. Don't kill babies. It's not in there like that, but I, there are multiple ways in which we see that in Scripture, that God values every life. So you shouldn't kill children, period. It's breaking God's law right? It's a silly game, and it's evil. This light view of sin in the eyes of God has made us friends with law-breaking as long as it satisfies our own twisted idea of justice. But the other error with the law is to add more and more to make sure that you don't come anywhere close to the actual law. And this is where the Judaizers were kind of hanging out. This is where legalism steps in. It's a way of saying that God wasn't specific enough to actually give us good instruction, so we need to fill in the details which was the, the case with them, and even still many Christians in our time, right? Uh, and, and, and here's the thing, too, and I want, I want to be very careful about this. Many times when we think of legalism, we think of like the super conservative Christians. But I will tell you, I will tell you, there is a lot of legalism in super conservative Christianity. There's a ton of legalism in progressive Christianity, too. It's just a backwards legalism, right? It's you have to be, you have to be, like, your mind has to be open enough to actually understand what God wants. And so if you don't do this, 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 and this, if you don't join this, this, and organization, if you don't say this is right, and this is right, and this is right, then you're, you're in sin. You're evil. You don't understand God's plan, right? There, there are two very distinct ways of practicing that type of legalism, but all of it comes down to the same thing. You need to add something to what God has already said, right? You either shirk it and take it away and make sin lighter, or you just really try to add as much as you can so that you don't end up sinning. The really sneaky evil, though, that Paul is addressing is not a complete disavowal of Christ from salvation, but it's the idea that salvation wasn't complete unless we contributed our best efforts to it right? That's the sneaky one. It's not like a hard line. It's not necessarily a hard line. It's just saying, well, yes, you do need, you do need to put your faith in Christ, but you need to be obedient too, right? Because it's, that's part of it. So you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this in addition to Jesus, and then you'll be okay. This is what the Judaizers were saying. 
And so that Paul says very clearly, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the second thing that Paul lands on right here in this big, uh, I, this big first idea or this big first question, how can we be made right with God, is only through faith in Christ, right? He says, but through faith in in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And I want you to see that here the emphasis is not even on the faith, but it's on the object of the faith. It's the, it, the emphasis, and this very, it's very slight, but I want you to see this, through faith in Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't just say through faith, like have faith. But the important part is not the faith, the important part is the object of the faith, right? It is not our faith that saves us. It's the object in which we put our faith. So it's Christ that brings salvation. It's not because we, ha we can almost make faith like another work, right? And we can end up being like, hey, I'm so smart. I found out that I need to trust in Jesus Christ. No, you didn't. No, you didn't find that out. You had a darkened heart, you were darkened in your understanding, and if, unless the Holy Spirit lifted the veil, you would never know that. So we can't walk around even pretending that faith is a work where we're like, hey, I'm smarter than everybody else. These other idiots who don't follow Jesus need to get their act together, right? No, that's not how this works. The emphasis is on the one in whom we place our faith. And many people try to turn faith into a work by claiming that their salvation has something to do with their ability to come to a knowledge of the truth. That still works. You see how terrible sin is? Yeah, tricky it is. And this is where we need to establish what exactly is justification. Because he's, he's using this word. Look at verse 17. If our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So he keeps saying justified, justified, justified. What is justification? It's, it's being made right in the sight of God. That's what justification is, right? You, you know this. Like I, if you feel justified, Right? If you say something, you call something, you're like, hey, this is what's going to happen. And somebody's like, no, nah, that's not what's going to happen. And then it happens, you're like, I feel justified. Right? I feel justified in knowing that I was right. It's being right with God. That's what it means, being justified. But from a biblical perspective, here's where we get to sort of define, like, technically, what is justification from a biblical perspective? It is a legal transaction. That's what the words are. The Greek words, uh, they sort of push us to understanding it from a legal perspective. Uh, there's a great paper by Ligonier Ministries that uh, puts it in this way. I think this is a great way to say it. They say it much better than I could. Justification is an act of God. It does not describe the way that God inwardly renews and changes a person. It is rather a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. God declares the sinner righteous at the very moment that the sinner puts his trust in Jesus Christ. And with some scriptural references, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, 516, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Justification is where God says, I can declare you as a sinful person not guilty on one condition, right? Christ must take your sin and you must take his perfect record. It's a swapping of records, basically, right? It's saying like, hey, you have completely broken the law. My son has never broken the law, not even, not even the smallest part of the law. So when you trust in what Christ has done, God takes Christ's perfection, his record of perfection, and applies it to your account. And he takes your sinful account and he applies it to the account of Christ Jesus. And so on the cross, when Christ died on the cross, the record of every person who has ever or will ever put their faith in Jesus Christ was bore on the cross by Christ. He sat under the weight of God's righteous wrath towards all those records stack those all together and then you tell me how great a pain you think that was to be separated from the father not because of anything that he did but so that our record by faith in him 
would be laid on him, and we as sinful people who love breaking the law right in our nature would be able to walk around and reckon ourselves as actually being friends and children of the God who we sinned against. That's amazing. That is amazing. Now, if you ask me to explain, like metaphysically, how does that happen, I got nothing for you. And that's why it requires faith, right? It doesn't make sense. It makes no sense to me. I don't know if it it does to you. It doesn't to me. You can sit down and like try to work out the the physics and the math. It doesn't work for me. I, I just know that Scripture teaches us that in order to be right with a God who we've sinned against, who we've forsaken, Christ had to take our record, right? He had to take our record of sin, and we have to have his record of righteousness applied to our account. So here's four benefits of justification that I think are extremely important for us to understand, too, Um, just to walk you through this. Number one, the first benefit of justification is that all our sins are forgiven because Jesus bears our record, right? So we are free from the curse and the guilt of the law. All our sins are forgiven. Number two, we are declared righteous before God. We have a new standing where we are declared to be righteous. So we have Christ's record accounted to us. We have his account of righteousness. And another way to say it is that we are dressed in Jesus' performance, right? We are, we are in his outfit, his performance. That would be like, um, that would be like, and honest, I do, I do not like the Lakers, okay? I, I just don't like basketball. I'm a Pistons fan, so like this year, I just didn't, I didn't watch it at all, not, not even because of anything political. I just can't stand the Lakers. Anyway, so like, but that would be like me walking around with a LeBron jersey on being like, how'd you like my series, right? People would be like, what are you talking about? I'd be like, did you not watch me? I'd be like, you don't look like anybody on the Lakers. But, uh, you, you know, just going around bragging that I have LeBron's record applied to my, like I have his stats. I don't have his stats, right? Like me dressing up like LeBron doesn't change anything, right? I, we were trying to dunk on like an eight-foot, me and some of the students were trying to dunk on like an eight-foot rim last night. It's terrible. You don't realize how old your body has gotten until you try to dunk on an eight-foot rim. I want to cry just thinking about it. But it's like us walking around by which God looks at us and he really does go like, that's, that's my son. That's my son's record. Right? We're good. good this, you're, I, I'm, I'm okay with you. We're, we're simpatico, right? I, I love you. You belong to me. It's nuts. But it's what we are dressed in Jesus' performance and we are actually free. We're free from that weight of our sin. Number four, we are treated as righteous in Christ. Treated as righteous in Christ. God sees only Christ's record. We don't possess our own righteousness. And this is where we need to make sure that we don't mix up justification with holiness. Okay? Being declared to be righteous before God is not the same thing as doing everything perfectly. And this is where some, some areas of Christianity get this wrong. They believe that once you're saved, you, do, you just become perfect. You guys, you have to know that that's not true, right? Especially if you're over 40, you have to know that that's not true. You have to. <laughs> it's not, that's not how it works. We don't possess our own righteousness or we don't earn a degree of merit. We are united with Christ and we enjoy the same benefits given to Christ for his obedience, right? We are justified in Christ. And this actually produces the good works of the Christian life. Because when we're not worried about performing, our obedience flows from the love that we've been shown in Christ, and then our desire becomes to live in sync with God's character. See how that works? It's, it's basically God dresses us in who he sees us as, and then we behave as we are, as we are seen, right? Not perfectly, but, but we don't put the cart before the horse and say like, oh no, it's my performance, you know, it's my performance that makes me look good to God. That's not how it works. The last thing that we have is we have peace with God. We have access to God and we have fellowship with Him. And we're justified on the record of Christ, the perfect record of Christ, who is the only person ever who completely fulfilled the law. We need to understand that. I run into people who are like, well, I don't really believe that Jesus was, you know, I don't believe that He obeyed every law. And I'm like, we have no hope of salvation unless He did. 
Don't let go of that. Young people, listen to me. Jesus lived a sinless life. If you're like, why is that important? Because you have no salvation if that's not true. None. And we're all living in a lie if that's true. Go home, find something else, because if Jesus was not perfect, we're all in a lot of trouble. Peace with God. This comes only through faith. This is what Paul says. It comes through faith. And simply, faith is believing the testimony that God has given of himself and the work of the Son. You know, it, it's not applied to everyone, but only to those who trust that it is only Christ who can set us free from our sins. So who gets to participate in that? When Paul says, look, we are justified by faith, not by works of the law, but we're justified by faith. Who gets to participate in that? Only those who've trusted in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus said of himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. That gets applied to no one else but those who have had faith in Jesus Christ. If you shuffle off this earth and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, God doesn't just say, well, I'm just too nice to, take it, to not to take you. Like, I gotta take you. That's not how it works. Scripture tells us, unless you have faith in Christ, you have no salvation. You have no justification, right? Your only hope is Jesus and Jesus' righteousness. But it's an imperfect faith. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit in opening the eyes of a sinful person to see their inability to accomplish what God has demanded and to take God at his word and believe what God has declared. Right? That's what faith is. Faith is believing what God has declared. That's why Scripture says of Abraham, it was counted unto him for righteousness. Listen, Abraham's salvation was always, has always been on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. But Abraham didn't know at the time that that was going to happen that way, right? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? If you ever read those passages and you're like, wait a minute, how is Abraham saved? Because Abraham didn't know about Jesus' finished work. But, so the basis on which anybody throughout history has been saved is always the finished work of Jesus Christ because he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so that was settled and secure, right? Before eternity, okay? But to believe God, so when, when God said to Abraham, follow me, this is what you're going to do, this, and Abraham believed him and trusted in him, then that's what we're talking about, that you believe God, you take him at his word, and even when it seems crazy what God asks you to do, you step into that because God has opened your heart to see that he's trustworthy, worthy of your obedience. So there's a form of half-justification that exists in pockets of Christianity, which is trying to say that part is faith and part is made up of our works. And Paul knows nothing of this. It's impossible to reckon this teaching from Scripture either. Either all of it is faith or all of it is works, but it can't be a combination of both. And Paul says, it's faith. It's faith. It's not works. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In order for God to give us actual righteousness based on himself, we have to be stripped of any self-righteousness. You cannot have the righteousness of Christ if you are a self-righteous person. Do you want to know why self-righteousness is such a big deal? It should be such a big deal to Christians when we see that in other people? Because it's, it's an antithetical position towards Christ. You have no righteousness of your own. You either have Christ or you have none. Right? Paul will go on to emphasize that the law is the way of pointing us to our need for salvation to come from outside of ourselves in Christ alone. And then we, we sort of get to the next question that he has in verses 17 through 21, right? And, and the, he's he's presuming what the argument is going to be. And the question is this, well, then what's the point of being good? What's the point of even trying, right? And I know many of you young people have probably asked this because you feel like at some point your parents have, have stacked unfair burdens on you, right? Unfair standards. Like, what's even the point of being good? Anybody ever said that before? I said it when I was a teenager. Anybody else in here? What's the point? What's the point of being good if things don't work out the way that I think they're supposed to, right? And there's an argument of self-righteousness in verses 17 through 19. But if our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, right? So if, if we're attempting to be justified in Christ and made righteous by faith in Christ, if we're found to still be sinners, right? If we're, if we're found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? The argument for Paul's opposition was basically, why care at all about being good and obeying God if he's just going to justify ungodly people anyway? What benefit is there to being good? We call that antinomianism. That's, that's like basically saying like, well, I'm a Christian, but law don't matter to me, right? 
They're afraid of these people. And there are still these critics today who emphasize that Christians must still emphasize personal obedience on the basis of the requirement of righteousness. And to relax this standard is to encourage people to, to continue in sin and, and then just say, God will forgive me, right? It's like what I grew up in was largely like, you know, no, no R-rated movies, no, uh, you know, no, um, no dancing because dancing leads to babies, um, no cards, um, no, you, you know what I mean? Like, no secular music, right? That's what I, that's what I grew up in, because you've got to make sure everybody's righteous. Um, and whatever you think about those things is beside the point. The point is that that's the fear of a lot of people, is we've got to keep people as far away from sinning as possible, because they can't trust themselves, and so the only way to do that is to add extras, right? to add extras, because what's the point? What's the point? If people aren't going to be good, what's the point of having Christ's righteousness if you're just going to throw it away in the way that you act? Paul's response to this is a resounding, no way, certainly not. This is, it's ridiculous. It's impossible for somebody to actually have the righteousness of Christ applied to their account by faith and yet willfully continue in sin. Hear this again. It is impossible for you to be sitting under the righteousness of Christ and go forward saying, well, I'm just going to sin because Christ covered me anyway. If that's your attitude, you are not saved. I'll declare it right here. If you're walking around and you're like, I'm sure I'm glad I got salvation so I can do whatever the heck I want and I'm not paying attention to God's law, you are not saved because that is not what salvation creates in us. It's just not. Paul's response is that that does not happen. It is impossible for that to happen. The error here is still assuming that the right standing of someone in the eyes of God is still in their own hands, though, and they may use it however they feel best. See, that's the misunderstanding, is to think that your salvation is in your own hands. It's not. It's not from you. Remember that picture I showed you? You know, Justice Barrett, she's right. What do you contribute to your salvation? Nothing. Nothing. And because you didn't contribute anything to it, you can't lose it either. God saves you. The God who saves you keeps you because you didn't earn your salvation, so you can't give it away. You didn't find it, so you're not the one who keeps it. He found you, and he keeps you, period. Scripture. What Paul was saying is that relaxing the law for the sake of emphasizing the supremacy of Christ means that Christ actually makes sin less serious than it should be, right? That's what he's saying that they're saying. Like, if you relax the law that it makes sin less serious. It makes Christ look like he's actually like, no, sin, because the more you sin, the more fun we have when I get to give you my righteousness. Right? And that's not, that's not true. We would do well to pay attention to the fact that Paul is actually calling out self-sufficiency and self-reliance as one of the biggest roadblocks to actually living in Christ. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This, the law actually kills us once it gets in us. That's what Paul is saying. Like once you, once you get at where you're cognizant of the law, right, that's when it, it kills us. I, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God, verse 19. The law kills us once it gets in us. It is death to the person that, who assumes that it can bring them life because once we realize what the standard is, right, then, we're, then you know. Like once you know right from wrong, then you know. Then you're on the hook for it, yes? And, and then the more you're cognizant of that, the more you realize you don't meet that standard and it's like a constant death. It's, you're constantly under the guilt of your sin because you know that your record belongs to you. It should belong to you. You should pay for your sins. We know that. We know that. Okay, deep down, everybody knows that. In order to be able to live to God, we must actually die to the law. This is what Paul's saying. Like, how is it possible? How is it possible? How is he answering these self-righteous people? We have to die to the law. The law creates in us a type of death in which we are in constant condemnation. Constant condemnation, right? The demands placed on us immediately condemn us because we can't possibly attain the standard. It's weighty. It's hard. Romans chapter 7, verses 8 through 12. Paul says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, right? So sin... Sin starts to, to get at, like, oh, there's all these rules. Let's break all these rules, right? 
For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So basically, like, when you know what the standard is, then sin is like, yeah, let's party. Your nature is like, yes, this is our time to shine. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. And then in verse 12, he says this, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Paul in Romans chapter 7 is saying that the law is not the problem. The problem with the law is you're so sinful that once the law gets a hold of you and you come face to face with it, all you want to do is break it. You don't think that's true? Watch a three-year-old. All the time, all day, 24-7. Amen? Watch, don't touch that thing. Okay? You even, I've told students before, like if I, everybody makes fun of Adam and Eve for the apple in the middle of the garden. I promise you, if I put like flat screen TVs and like Xboxes and stuff in a room and then stuck like one small candy bar on a table in the middle of the room and said, whatever you do, take everything else. If you touch that candy bar, you're, you're going to pay, right? That candy bar would be gone by the time I got back in that room just because somebody just wants to take the candy bar because I said not to. Agreed or disagree? Agree. That's how we operate. Law brings a knowledge of sin, and our sin is such a bad deal. We are in such a bad state in our sinfulness. The law has created in us a problem that it cannot solve. Our sin is amplified by the knowledge of the standard. So now we're faced with a huge issue. We can't relax the standard because the standard is fixed, but we also can't meet the standard because our sin won't allow us to meet the standard. That's where you're stuck. That's where we're stuck in. You can't relax it because you know it's there, but you can't meet it because of your sin. And so this is where Paul leads us to, so what do we do, man? How, well, what is the point of being good? How do we get to being good? How do we reconcile all this stuff? If we can be made right in the sight of Christ, not of our own account, if it's God that does it for us, like, how, do we, how are we supposed to put all this stuff together? And in verses 20 and 21, Paul gives us the response of grace. And look at the response of grace. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like, we take that and we quote it, but we don't, like, unless you read those verses before, you don't really, really understand the depth and the weight of that statement. He's like, look, the law kills us because as soon as we meet it, we know that we want to break it and we do break it and we can't stop and we're always going to have this record because if you've broken one law, even the tiniest law, you've broken it all. Scripture says you're, you're liable and culpable for all of it and you're, in your heart, you really don't want to serve God. You really want to serve yourself. You got a problem and I've got a problem. And since we've already got a record, we can't get rid of it. What hope is there for us? Like doing as good as we can from this point on is not going to get rid of our record. That's not going to save us. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. We can only be delivered from the curse of the law by being united with Christ in his death, which means we must die to ourselves. We must die to our efforts. We must die to the attempt at an earthly solution to a spiritual problem. You can't, you can't stack up enough good to make God pleased with you. It won't work. It won't add anything to righteousness. It will not accomplish the righteousness of God. And let's be clear, this is not simple for humans. Paul said in order for us to, to really be alive, we have to die. Isn't what he says? I've been crucified with Christ, Right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He says, law's gonna kill me, so where did I turn? I died. I died with Christ, right? This is not simple. We don't wanna die, and not just in a physical sense. We don't wanna die in any way. We wanna win. We want our way. We want our solution. How do I know this? Politics, right now. Everybody just wants their own solution. I want my way. I want my, my utopia. And if you don't think that both sides have a utopia, you're wrong, the unfortunate part is most of the utopia that I hear talked about has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The most important thing to Paul was 
you have to die to really live. How is it that we can stand in front of God and him say, like, you are right with me? You have to reckon yourself as dead in Christ. You trust in Jesus and you go to the cross with him. That's why Jesus said, unless, any, unless you pick up the cross and follow me, you can't. If you don't die to yourself, you can't be my disciple. If you don't put down everything that the world is changing, you can't, you can't follow me. It's going to be too hard. You're not going to be able to do it. If you're trusting in yourself to be able to, to, to make this, this life work for you, you're dead in the water. Dying to ourselves is the only way. It's the only way. We must be born again. We must have a new heart and new desires. We must join Christ on the cross and in the grave in order to join him in resurrection. Francis Schaeffer said the pattern of every Christian is the same of Jesus. Rejected, slain, raised. You want to live in Christ? People are going to reject you. Brace yourself for it. I'm actually a little bit encouraged that it, we're drawing closer to a time where Christians are finally going to have to put up or shut up. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe he is the hope for the world, you're going to have to stand before some in the next couple decades and declare that in the face of all sorts of sin that will get passed off as righteousness in the world's eyes. You better be ready. You better be ready to be reckoned as dead to your own desires and alive with Christ. You better be ready. In order to be accepted in God's sight, we must lose our desire to be accepted on our own terms. That's what he's getting at. You will not be made right in, in, the, in, in God's sight if you reject the only way to be made right in God's sight, which is to die to yourself, to trust in Christ. Being justified does not make a Christian free to sin. On contrary, it actually makes them free to finally live in obedience out of pure motives as the Holy Spirit sanctifies them and accomplishes the work of making them more like Christ. John Calvin said this way, Christ did not introduce sin, but he revealed it. He did not rob these people of righteousness, but he robbed them of the false showing of righteousness. We are justified by his grace and his grace alone. Anytime we attempt to give credit to our own works as contributing to our salvation or God's acceptance of us, we are robbing Christ of the true reward of his finished work. And we make null the grace of God. If you try to take credit for even a shred of, your, of, of the righteousness that we have in Christ, of your salvation, you're off. We're off. And justification is not the same thing as sanctification, right? Remember, it's not, justification is not being made holy. You don't just immediately, you're not made holy. Your account is considered, you're looked at by God when God looks at you. Even when you sin, God doesn't look at you and be like, no, that's it, too much, it's too much. You will always have the account of Christ, right? By faith in Jesus Christ, you will always have that account applied to you. That doesn't mean that you're going to, that doesn't make you immediately holy. But sanctification is the process of God making you holier over time, like increasing your obedience to him. And that does happen if you're justified because your entire motive is changed right? He says, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life will not make sense. It will not make sense to us. It will most certainly not make sense to the world. We are seated in the heavenly places with renewed minds on heavenly things. Our mind are now free to be wrapped up in holy things even while we continue to live here on earth. We have died with Christ and we lay hold of the certainty that our full reward has been deposited in us through the Spirit and we will receive it in full when we enter eternity. The reason Paul is so forceful about this is he's like, this is the thing. I have died. It's not my life anymore. That's why Paul could go around and say, hey, whatever happens to me, if it advances the gospel, that's all I want. Believer, could we say that today? This was hard for me. This, this was a hard message to prepare for me because I realized how much I want my own righteousness. I want to stand before people and have them be like, you are amazing. I want to stand before people and say, yes, get your way. I want to tell God, this is what I want my life to look like, and I want God to be like, you can have it. It's absolutely antithetical to what it is to live in Christ. What is the point of being good? To show 
that the power of the cross isn't about trying to earn God's favor, but being able to live freely in God's love through the power of the Holy Spirit. The point of being good is to say, Christ has begun this. Christ is continuing this. Christ will complete this. Paul ends this section by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And we know, right? We know that Christ didn't die for no purpose. God wouldn't require something that wasn't necessary. And this is the gravity of our need. And this is the depth of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, there was no other way for us to be presented to God as right. Christ died that we might live. But for us to truly live, we must die with Christ. There's no other way. Let's pray. Lord, there are lots of things in Scripture that um, don't make sense to us on a face level. And this is one of those, Lord. We don't understand how it could be that we could be declared right even though we didn't do anything to, to secure that. Lord, in fact, we did everything that was necessary for you to undo. And yet, because of your grace and your mercy, Lord, instead of requiring us, demanding that we fix ourselves and and make up the gap between our sinfulness and your holiness, Lord. You gave yourself. Lord, I I know that there are people in in this room and maybe even watching tonight that they have been trying, trying to please you through their acts, through their works, and all that they're facing is this massive weight of guilt where they know no matter how many good things they do, there are a million bad things that come right after them that keep them from actually experiencing what they're looking for. And Father, I pray that tonight you would help them understand that there is no righteousness in our own work, Lord. That we can only truly be set free from guilt, declared not guilty, and living free by faith in Christ. By trusting that Christ accomplished everything that we should have. And by faith in him, his death, his work, his resurrection, that we could share in that account and have our sinful record expunged. Lord, I pray that for those of us who have been walking with you, that you would remind us that this is not a small thing. This is not just an entry-level doctrine. This is the very heartbeat of the gospel. There is no righteousness outside of life in Christ. Outside of his payment for our sin, his victory on the cross. Lord, we love you, and we would just ask that you would remind us tonight of your great love, our great need, and Lord, that for some of us, that you would just help us to just use this time to just ponder sit in it, bask in it, Lord, and return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.